Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 7, and it's going to focus partly on the period between 1450 and the early 1500s, and mostly it's about the Indian Ocean ports. We heard last episode how Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Dias had rounded the Cape and landed at Mossel Bay in November 1488. He was the first person to sail around the continent to the south, and his journey revolutionized commerce in Europe and southern Africa and the Far East. Diaz dropped anchor in Mossel Bay, and his men filled their water barrels. They were approached by coy herders who were nearby. There appears to be some kind of confrontation. Stones were thrown, and when the Portuguese fired back with a crossbow, one of the coy herders had been killed. This was an ominous sign for future relationships. The first contact between Europeans and the traditional coy herders had ended in violence. It is not clear exactly what set this off, but neither group could speak the other's language, which didn't help. Diaz then sailed onwards to Algoa Bay, satisfied he'd rounded the tip of Africa, turned and sailed home again, passing Cape Point and the future location of Cape Town on the way back. As he journeyed home, and just beyond the southern tip of Africa, Diaz's ships were hit by a gale and a major storm, so naturally he gave the Cape the name Cabo de Todos los Tormentos, or Cape of Storms. When he returned to Portuguese King João, he was delighted to hear about the route, but not pleased with the name. He had a good eye for public relations and ordered a change to Cabo del Bao Esperanza, or Cape of Good Hope, a name which remains in use to this day. I ended last episode by explaining how name changes are a natural human compulsion, and King João was no different. Diaz then tried to drum up support for another expedition down south, but he was faced with a challenge. Other explorers were more interested in the direct route westwards across the Atlantic to the New World. The Spanish were dominating this route and were already plundering South America, and King João rejected Diaz's plans for another trip down to the Cape. As the competition increased between Spain and Portugal, Pope Alexander tried to mediate, and eventually it was agreed that the world would be split in two. The boundary would run north to south at a distance of 1,175 miles, or 370 leagues west of the Azores Islands. That gave Portugal the whole of Africa, India and China, as well as most of what we now know as Brazil. I'm sure those affected would have been bemused by this extreme form of colonial planning. Other European nations like England, France and Holland got nothing. The first step in exploiting and exploring the new territory fell to Vasco da Gama, who was dispatched to secure the new route to India around southern Africa. Da Gama was instructed to head straight for the Cape of Good Hope instead of hugging the west coast of Africa, which Diaz had done on the way down in 1488. So this time, da Gama would aim to cross the ocean, turn at the Cape, and then sail straight for the Malabar coast of mainland India, a huge undertaking, and one never achieved before by any sailing nation. It was an extremely dangerous journey into the deep Atlantic, and after 93 days without spotting land, Tagama landed at St. Helena Bay, north of Cape Town, on the 4th of November, 1497, having achieved a world first. He had sailed through the South Atlantic for over 3,700 miles. Tagama came ashore at St. Helena and ran straight into Koi herders once again. They had settled in southern Africa thousands of years before, as we've heard, and the sand had been on the land even longer. Tagama described the Koi as swarthy men who eat only sea wolves. 
which were what early sailors called seals, as well as whales, and whose arms were staff of wild olives tipped with fire-hardened horn. Their dogs barked exactly as they did in Portugal, reported de Gama in his logbook. The Portuguese sailors needed a bit of R&R, so they remained at the bay for more than a week, and things appeared to be going well between the Africans and the Europeans. Matters, however, did not remain calm, and a misunderstanding arose about what we are not sure, and de Gama was hit in the leg with a spear. The wound was not serious, but the Portuguese beat a hasty retreat after firing their ship's cannon that caused the koi to scatter. Not an auspicious end to the relationship after such a great beginning. De Gama set sail for Cape Point and then onwards to Mossel Bay once more, where Dias had landed ten years before in 1488. De Gama's ships had been battered by terrifying gales, and the men delighted in the islands around Mossel Bay, covered with their noisy birds and easy food. However, his supply ship was beyond repair, so he unloaded it and burnt it. De Gama met the Koi, who were still herding their cattle along the coast, and the same people Dias had met ten years before. First impressions on both sides were favourable. The Portuguese managed to barter a few head of sheep and cattle in exchange for metal goods, knives and other valuables. This was the first known exchange of goods between Europeans and black South Africans. A form of commerce and relationship building was now underway. Musical instruments were produced. The koi had flutes and the Portuguese had trumpets. An impromptu concert, or what we'd probably call a jam session, took place at the South African beach braai, or what is also called a barbecue. The Gama danced on the beach with a koi. A fat ox was bought, and things appeared to be going really well. All sizzling meat and dancing men and some women. How lovely life was down south, the Portuguese must have been thinking. Such peaceful people, these koi. Then the Portuguese filled their barrels of water, and this is what apparently set off the koi. De Gama had not asked permission of the local leader to tap the water, and a large group of warriors pitched up to teach the Portuguese a lesson. De Gama and his men rushed for their boats, while a cannon blast dispersed the koi, a trick that was to stand the European seafarers in good stead in future missions across Africa. These two incidents, however, were not a good sign for the relationship between Europeans and the koi and the sand. Still, de Gama was more interested in his main destination, Calcutta or Kolkata as we know it now, on the west coast of India, so he continued sailing onwards. Vasco de Gama succeeded where other sailors had failed and proved that there was indeed a sea route from Europe to the Indies around the Cape of Good Hope. His name was forever written into historical annals, but he would not have managed this trip without innovations in the shipping industry. Firstly, the type of ship, the Caravel, which meant it was now possible to sail into the wind, and the reliable maps which were being produced. To our modern eye, the maps appear somewhat haphazard, but don't be fooled. Even in 1488, they were loaded with navigational tips, and medieval Arab and Jewish scientists had gifted the world the astrolabe and cross staff almost 200 years before, so that sailing across oceans was now possible. The other major invention, of course, was the magnetic compass, which was introduced as early as the 1300s. The Europeans were not alone. The Chinese were also visiting the East Coast by the 1200s and feeling their way down in much larger ships. Of course, Arab Dows had made passages to India and the South China Sea for some time prior to de Gama's arrival in India. This trade crisscrossing the Indian Ocean was far more dynamic and long-standing than the trade along America's East Coast. But the Europeans had one additional invention the Arab and Indian vessels did not have. Deeper hulls that accommodated powerful batteries of cannon. 
The Regent, for example, which had been built by Henry VII of England in 1495, could mount 225 guns. When they faced the much larger forces of the Mughals, the great Ottoman, as well as Chinese, whether on land and sea, they could use these ships to defend their trading posts. And thus, the Portuguese began to dominate the Indies, and by default, the African coastline. There was no other navy around at the time, nor a Suez Canal. They were motivated partly by greed and some by the Pope's decree that they owned the continents on behalf of Christians. Lands and all the people they came across in Africa, the Middle East and Asia were theirs. Local power networks shifted quite quickly. For the next 150 years, numerous expeditions were sent along de Gama's route to the east to pick up precious commodities that were to stimulate the Europeans' development. De Gama became a viceroy in the east and set up trading stations from Mozambique to Macau and pepper, spices, silk, gold, precious stones were hauled back to Europe. The stream of wealth coming across the Atlantic from the New World of the Americas was matched for some time by a similar flow of treasure around the Cape of Good Hope. It had turned into a more lucrative route than the old spice road from China. South Africa's history was impacted immediately by these traders. Lines of communication were secured by these fortified posts from Luanda on the Angolan coast for more than 2,000 miles around the south and east, passing through modern-day Maputo and up into the islands of Zanzibar. The Portuguese took over the existing Arab trading posts and on the eastern coast of Africa and together with the hinterlands claimed these for the King of Portugal and so it remained for more than 500 years with one disclaimer. The Portuguese were never able to control more than a few trading stations and a handful of routes into the interior of southern Africa. It was the southern Africans we heard about last episode, the new people emerging on the landscape who controlled the inland trade becoming richer and more powerful by exchanging goods with these new arrivals from Europe. And what did these Europeans want as badly as gold and ivory? Slaves to feed their plantations in Brazil and the Americas. But they were going to learn a harsh lesson from the southern Africans. By the early 1500s, the need was growing for this human trade, and the Spanish and Portuguese were venturing further afield in Africa to secure victims. In North and West Africa, the local kingdoms were making a mint of money by operating as intermediaries, supplying the Europeans with their own people, and naturally the Portuguese thought that they should start their own slave trade in the newly discovered land of southern Africa. They could cut out all those chiefs of West Africa who operated as middlemen and go directly to the source. This odious trade was carried out by men of the most brutal kind, and what happened to one Portuguese captain in particular served as a warning to other slave traders to stay well away from South Africa. In 1510, a strong raiding party under the leadership of Bernardo de Almeida landed at the Cape of Good Hope, but he should have been more attentive to the warnings of another man, Antonio del Saldana. He had given his name to Saldana Bay on the west coast of South Africa, but he almost gave his life too. Seven years before, in 1503, del Saldana had landed at the beautiful bay to supply his ships with fresh water, only to be ambushed by a 200-strong company of Khoi warriors, his party managed to escape with only minor injuries. It could have been far worse, and it was going to be far worse for Dalmeda. We know that Dalmeda landed in the vicinity of Table Mountain and Table Bay, and his plan was to find people and enslave them. Instead, he marched slap-bang into one of the notorious Khoi war parties, who did not want to be enslaved by anyone, let alone Dalmeda. 
Their mode of warfare caught the Portuguese cold. First, the Khoi warriors called their cattle to their side by whistling loudly and using hand signals which the cattle seemed to understand. The herd followed their commands like Hannibal's elephants. Then the Khoi formed the cattle into a squadron and charged the Portuguese while seeking shelter behind this squadron of snorting cows. The Portuguese were gobsmacked and taken completely by surprise. They had never seen people use cattle as weapons of war like this. They attacked our men with wooden darts hardened by fire, wrote one survivor later. Although the Khoi could not work metal and we were still technically a Stone Age people, they could fight as well as anyone. Some fell wounded and were trodden down by the cattle, and as most were without shields, their only weapons being lances and swords, in this kind of warfare they could not do much damage, said the Portuguese survivor. Protected by their cattle, they hurled their sharpened fire sticks and overran the Portuguese. When it was over, Delmeda lay dead, along with 50 of his men, a true catastrophe for the would-be European slave traders. The rest withdrew, and that was the end of slave trading in the Cape for now. Meanwhile, in the interior of southern Africa, new people had once again emerged on the landscape. Remember, we have tracked Mapungubwe and Great Zimbabwe as it developed on the back of trade routes to the eastern ports starting from 900 AD through to 1300 AD, but by 1400, major changes were taking place. Another injection of Shona and Sutu-speaking people were moving southward and crossing the Limpopo River. They were centered on the capital of Kami, near present-day Bulawayo in southwestern Zimbabwe, and were also expanding towards the Sotbansberg mountain range further south. The Venda people of today were also emerging as the Kami culture moved south at this time. The expansion of the Mapungubwe population initially coincided with the extension of Arab trading voyages southward along the East African coastal region of Kenya and Tanzania, then into Mozambique. In the north, slaves were seized in what the Arabs called the land of Zanj. Other products were also taken, including leopard skins, tortoiseshell, ivory, and iron at times. But Kilwa, 150 miles south of Zanzibar, marked the southernmost limit of travel for Arab dhows sailing from the Persian Gulf and back on the monsoons. Their dhows could not sail upwind, so they were at the mercy of these monsoon winds. Beyond Kilwa, the trade was conducted by intermediaries who had access to the land of Safala and the fable kingdoms of gold. That was Great Zimbabwe. By the way, Safala means shoal in Arabic and is now known as Beira. Sofala gave traders access to the produce of the Limpopo Basin, which was the first region of southern Africa's interior to be integrated into the trade network of the Indian Ocean. As we've heard, glass beads from India, Egypt and even Indonesia were found at Mapungubwe. The gold washed down the alluvial streams from the highlands and after some time early African prospectors discovered that the metal was far more readily available at sites along a ridge of hills and mountains that are known as the Bilingue Greenstone Belt that was closer to where Great Zimbabwe was eventually erected. That is south-central Zimbabwe today, although the belt is 2.7 billion years old and laced with veins of gold. The name Bilingue is a Shona translation of Mbarengwa, which means place bearing great weight or carrying great expectation. The development around this region also followed the Tsetse Fly belt. The plateau was Tsetse Fly free, and that is where Great Zimbabwe was built. It was also close to a large river system, and as we've already heard, it took advantage of convection winds from the south as well. Lataba ceramics began to be found linked to the Singo tradition, distinctive vendor style from the early 1500s, and that style is still found in South Africa today. 
The prestige trade goods that were part of the Mapungubwe and Great Zimbabwe empires continued to be found in the graves of the Singo elites through the 1400s and 1500s. At its zenith, Great Zimbabwe covered an area of 78 hectares. By the 1200s, building had been going on since 1000 AD, with dry stone walling preferred. During the 14th century, the great enclosure was constructed over a shoulder of level ground half a kilometre from the hill's settlement itself. The massive outer wall is 244 metres long and 3 metres thick, as well as 10 metres high, and forms an irregular ellipse, which is just under 90 metres in diameter. It's the largest prehistoric structure in sub-Saharan Africa. It also features two high parallel walls, which restrict access from the northwest and which lead to a small enclosed space containing the enigmatic conical tower, which is 5.5 metres in diameter and just under 10 metres high. Nearby, the largest granite hills exfoliate thin layers of rock as the hot day temperatures and the cool nights cause parallel-sided slabs of granite up to two feet thick to split off from the rock domes and slide down and to collect a scree over centuries. These blocks lend themselves to being used as they are regular cuboidal shapes with parallel surfaces and vertical sides and a standard thickness. They can be stacked together to form massive walls. The people built using dry stone techniques, just as those used by ancient people of the Orkney Islands or the Inca of Peru in China and, of course, in Egypt. As the Arab traders declined, so too did Great Zimbabwe. It was maintained constantly between 1275 and 1550, when the great medieval cathedrals of Europe were also under construction. But we must understand that Great Zimbabwe was built quickly. Stone masons would tell you that, the stones were not selected and laid with consideration for their relative size. Vertical joints run continuously through three or more courses instead of being offset in the manner of the Incas, the Chinese and the Egyptians. Offsetting joints increases the wall strength and failing to do this is one of the reasons why some of the walls of Great Zimbabwe have collapsed. Modern stonemasons were presented with the plans of the site and estimated that a workforce of 84 men working six days a week could build the entire complex in two years. This incredible structure would cost around 5 million US dollars in today's money and consume around 50,000 tons of rock. Great Zimbabwe was in decline by this time as the Torwa people began to dominate the area around modern Zimbabwe. The gold trade was no longer controlled by Great Zimbabwe. This trade was now dominated by Shona-speaking people closer to modern-day Bulawayo. The effect of the Portuguese on the east coast of Africa had a direct bearing on the trade by this time. They had wrested control of the Indian Ocean ports, particularly Kilwa, while the first attempt in 1500 by Pedro Alvarez Cabral to take Safala failed, it was not going to be long before the entire east coast from Kenya to Cape Town was dominated by the Portuguese seafarers. And at the same time, the climate was becoming drier. The local ecology had also been shattered by the huge number of people living so close together on the landscape around Great Zimbabwe. The damage inflicted by generations of humans was so extreme that certain tree species will not grow in the area to this day. The halcyon days of Great Zimbabwe were over. But incredible finds proved just how important it was. For example, archaeologists in 1903 unearthed the cache of the most varied and numerous articles ever found in sub-Saharan Africa and dated to the 13th and 14th centuries. These were buried near the northeastern rim of the Great Enclosure and included glazed Persian bowls with 14th century inscriptions, Chinese celadon dishes and shards of Chinese stoneware. 
fragments of engraved and painted Near Eastern glass, and of course tens of thousands of beads. Coral, cowrie shells, spoons, and an iron lamp holder suspended from a copper chain were dug up along with large numbers of copper finger rings and rolls of brass wire. Items such as iron wire, hose, axes, chisels, and other tools were also discovered, as well as copper ingots linked to places as far inland as the Congo Basin and Zambia. There were also artifacts from West Africa that indicates just how far the trading network extended. And as many as 18,000 people may have lived at Great Zimbabwe during its heyday, but it didn't last long, flourishing for only 100 years or around three generations. Meanwhile, in 1498, Vasco da Gama had sailed up the east coast, arriving at the port of Malindi, which is north of the modern Mombasa in Kenya. He met the local sheik of Malindi and signed a trade agreement, then hired a guide for the voyage to India. However, when he tried to conduct business with Mombasa's sheiks, they were hostile to any idea of working with the Portuguese. The Mombasa and Malindi Arab rulers were competitors. In 1502, Vasco da Gama sailed back to the Indian Ocean coast with 19 ships and captured Kilwa Palace and took the Sultan hostage. He was only released after agreeing to pay tribute to Portugal. The Sultan of Kilwa turned to the Malindi people for help, but they rejected his approach, both because they were local rivals, but also they'd signed a deal with the Gama and recognized he could help them overcome both the Kilwa and Mombasa sheiks. A year later in 1503, Ravasco overcame Zanzibar with assistance from the Milindi people, and by 1504, another raid by Portuguese ships halted the gold trade inland for some time. There were ongoing battles over the next decade between various sultans, including the Sultan of Safala and the Portuguese, but by 1507, Tristan da Cunha had seized the northern towns of Socotra, Oja, Brava, Merca, and Mombasa in modern-day Kenya. By 1509, another Portuguese adventurer by the name of Alba Quiqui had captured the remaining Arab towns that it held out, including the port on the island of Pemba off Mozambique. Interestingly, Malindi remained the centre of Portuguese activity in East Africa until 1593, when they shifted their main base to Mombasa. After this, Malindi gradually declined until it almost disappeared by the end of the 17th century. But we must drop anchor right now. Next episode, I will look at the period between 1550 and 1600 as the Dutch and the English begin to increase their interest in the East. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. Also, head off to desmondlatham.blog for my notes and a few maps. You can also contact me on Twitter. My handle is at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.